love you and thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, church. Hey, there we are. Hey, again, I'm Peter. I'm the senior pastor. For those of you who were uh, tardy this morning, <laughs> at least you own it. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to share today from the Word, um, and, uh, and I hope you're excited as well as we continue to march through this series that we're calling Epistles, and um, we're, we're talking through the Pauline Epistles, essentially any letter that Paul wrote to either a church or an individual that we have in Scripture. That's what we're kind of talking through. Um, and, uh, and the intent of this series is to zoom out and look at what was being accomplished uh, in these letters as a whole. Because while we do a good job oftentimes at zooming in and focusing on individual verses and that sort of thing, which is incredibly important, we don't always zoom out a little bit and take a look at what Paul was trying to accomplish as a whole by writing these letters. And, and it's been, I've really, really enjoyed this series to kind of zoom out and look at the books of the Bible from kind of a more holistic viewpoint. I've gained a lot of wisdom as, as, uh, as I've walked through this. I hope you have as well. Um, this week is, uh, we're, we're hitting First Thessalonians, and the church is a church called Thessalonica. Um, that's the fancy way that you say it, or you can just say the Thessalonians, whatever you want to do. Um, but the reason that we're doing this is because there are, there are people in this room, myself included, who've been a part of faith for either an incredibly long time and may have missed maybe some of the intention that Paul has in his letters, um, or maybe that there, there are people here who haven't largely heard of what Paul was trying to accomplish because you're new to faith. In either instance, we can definitely gain wisdom for that. And uh, today we realize that there's a whole lot of people in here who have said yes to Jesus. But regardless of that, in a practical sense, we don't really know how that fleshes itself out in our lives. So in other words, uh, a lot of us have prayed the prayer, we've either come forward or we've said it silently or we've talked to somebody and you sat in somebody's office or, or a friend of yours, whatever it may be, introduced you to Jesus and you became a part of the fellowship of believers, a part of the capital C church. You became a part of that. But... Outside of going to church on a Sunday morning and then going to a Bible study on Wednesday night and a, and a Bible study on Thursday morning and listening to what I have to say on a, on a Sunday and you taking that and applying it, like reading your Bible and praying and all the things that I'm supposed to say when I, uh, when I, get, when I get to the end of my message, all of those different things— um, Really, we don't know what that looks like in our, in our practical lives. So outside of the spiritual disciplines, what does it look like then for us to be able to be Christians wherever it is that we may find ourselves? How does that look? Whether that's uh, in your classrooms, if you're a teacher or a student, how does it look for you to be a Christian in that realm? Or maybe, maybe it's uh, in your homes. How does it look, practically speaking, to be a Christian in your home? Whether your mom or your dad or your kid or your or you're a parent or grandparent in the home, what does that look like practically in your home to be a follower of Jesus? Maybe it's a, maybe maybe you're a coach or you're on a team somewhere. What does it look like practically for you to be a Christian as a coach or as a teammate? Or maybe it's your job. 
What does it look like for you when you go to work, practically speaking, to be a Christian? How does that flesh itself out? Well, we're going we're gonna to dissect that a little bit today, and Paul is specifically going to talk about that. But let's learn a little bit about the church in Thessalonica. So your first slide is here. The author, obviously, is Paul. It's really nice. I don't have to change that part of the slide each week. So Paul. Date is 51 AD. This is probably one of our earliest letters that we have from the Apostle Paul. He's writing from a church in Corinth to the church in Thessalonica. So... <clears throat> What we need to do, though, is pull a little bit of backstory to this church. <laughs> Excuse me. To the Thessalonian church. Um, anybody, Jeff, you around? Jeff, can you give me a bottle of water if possible? Because I'm going to die up here, I think. Um, <clears throat> or at least you. Oh, never mind. My wife got it. <laughs> yeah. Quicker than you, bro. <laughs> That's why I married her. Um, so. <laughs> let's get back into it. Um, on that note, let's talk some serious theology. Okay, so we need to get some backstory. Backstory we're actually going to find in the book of Acts chapter 17. And so that's actually going to be our first section. And I know some of you type A people out there are like, time out. You can't say the first section of First Thessalonians is the book of Acts. Sorry, it is. Acts chapter 17. Your major theme there is going to be Christian conversion. And the key verse is going to be Acts 17 verses 1 through 8. And I'm just going to read through it for you and then I'll, then I'll back up. So starting in verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but official, or sorry, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Verse 8, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. So to recap, after about a month of Paul preaching on the Sabbath, as was his custom, a large group of both Jews and God-fearing Greeks decided that they were going to come to faith in Christ. And immediately after that, what happens is they found their church. This is the first church that we're going to have in, in, in Thessalonica. But trouble, obviously, is right around the corner because Paul's proclamation of Jesus Christ as king, being the risen savior and true God, got the Roman Empire pretty upset because the Roman Empire was controlling the city of Thessalonica. So what happened was uh, they, the, 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 Romans, the Romans were practicing Caesar worship. And so when we have somebody else, Paul and Silas, coming in and saying, you know what? No, that's not the true king. There is a true king. He's our risen savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Everybody needs to worship him and not Caesar. Obviously, Caesar's going to have some beef with that. He's not going to be too incredibly happy. 
So what happens then from that point forward is that as the Christians were practicing their faith, there was some very severe persecution going on with them in the church. The persecution actually got so real that Paul and Silas had to flee the city for fear of their lives. They didn't want to die. This was incredibly difficult for them, though, because, as we're going to learn, they loved the church in Thessalonica. They absolutely loved them. Before we move on, I want to focus on one of the most powerful verses that we find here. One of my favorite verses. If you could go back one slide for me, if possible, in verse 6. If you go all the way to the bottom, it says, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Man, that gives me boost, boost gumps every time <laughs> I hear it. That's the real type of goosebumps. Gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. Because the fact that this isn't some massive legion of soldiers who are coming and disrupting people. This isn't this big mob that these guys have put together. They're looking for two people. Two people who have, quote, caused trouble all over the world. They have disrupted the social structure, the cultural norms all over the world. Simply by proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Man, powerful Two guys have caused trouble all over the world. And now that they, now they have come here. Hey, church, when's, uh, when's the last time that you had people upset at you because you were upsetting social norms because of your faith in Christ? Whew. That's a hard question to ask. I don't know if that's ever been true in my life. People upset with me because I'm proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord that that is the only filter through which I am viewing my life, my being, who I am, what I do, what my family does. I don't know if that's ever been true of me. I hope it's been true of you, and I hope that as we continue to read through this, we can recognize that there's, there's application here for us to say, you know what, man, that is absolutely true, that I want to be known as somebody that wherever I go, that I'm causing trouble all over the world for the name of Christ. So, let's continue. Regardless, so that's where the church is left off. Paul wants to encourage them with this letter. They're facing severe persecution, and largely he encourages them. That's what he does. But he does it in the same way that he does every other epistle that we've gone through. He reminds them to live correctly. Now, this isn't one of those churches that's really, really messed up. Actually, it's the opposite. So you guys get a little bit of a break for a week, okay? I feel the tension in my spirit. No, don't worry. You'll still have a challenge. But I, I feel the tension, same tension in your spirit that, 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 that you do is uh, Jeff and I, as we're talking through these epistles, and I'm like, man, I feel like I get off stage every week and we've gone 13 rounds trying to figure out like what it is that we're supposed to do. So for that, I apologize if you feel beat up by this series, but in the same sense, I don't because this is Paul, this isn't me. And this is the exact same thing that Paul is going to be preaching to these churches. He's not going to sugarcoat it and neither am I. And so Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he's going to remind them, hey, you have to live correctly. You need to have right living. He wants to reconnect with them. Beyond that, he wants to reconnect with them um, after he gets a report from Timothy saying that they were actually flourishing despite their persecution, which leads us to section two, which is also the first part of the chapter. So, 
Section two, it's going to be chapters one through three. Your major theme there is celebration of faithfulness. Man, Paul is so excited about the fact that they have been so incredibly faithful to God, regardless of the persecution they're facing. Your key verse is 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. But Paul tells them how great they are and how they're an incredible example of faith. They're an incredible example of hope and love. And then he quickly moves on to remind them about their conversion. He says, hey, look, this is where you've been. Remember who you were. Remember what you were a part of. And he is encouraging them to continue to move forward and even tells them that's an encouragement to him as well. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, it says, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell you how you, or they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He tells him, look, this is where you've been. Remember where you've been, your idol worship. You turned your back on that. You said yes to Jesus, who is going to come back one day. So be encouraged by that. In a city like Thessalonica, it was a great cost to say yes to Jesus and no to everything else you would have been outcast and persecuted. Not like the outcast and persecuted that we get in America today where someone like blocks you on Facebook and you're like, I feel persecuted right now. Sorry, completely different type of persecution that we have going on here. But to say yes to Jesus and no to everything else in that time would have been incredibly costly. Family and friends would have turned their backs on you. But ultimately those people who decided to follow Jesus decided it was a, a lot more worth it to love God to love Jesus specifically than it was for them to be able to be social, uh, socially embraced and culturally embraced by everyone else. And as Paul continues in chapter two, he talks about how close they all became as a family. And that because of the fact that they were so close that he and Silas gave themselves to them because they cared for them so much, there is a depth of relationship here. They're saying, I love you. I love you, and because of the fact that I love you, I want you to remember these things. It's in the same way that maybe a, a mom or a dad, as their kids are going off to college, rather than a reprimand, they are reminding them, hey, we love you so much. Remember the things that we've taught you as you go from here. We love you. Be encouraged about those things. Be encouraged about those things. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He continues simply by telling them how excited he is that they're enduring persecution at the same time because Paul is also enduring persecution here. Paul is enduring persecution by all of those people. You ever think about Paul's old friends? Like we always talk about, Paul, you're so great. You used to be Saul and you were, you were man, the, the chief Pharisee of all Pharisees and you were the best Jew in the world. And I often forget about the fact that Paul had a social circle. He had people that embraced him and loved him and, and wanted to see him be the best Pharisee that there was. And when Paul said no to the old way of living, to the, to the old covenant, to embrace a new covenant, Paul largely had to turn his back on a whole lot of people and say, no, Jesus is the one true king. And so Paul was facing persecution from that group of people at the same time that the, the, the Thessalonians are facing persecution from, from uh, the Roman authority, from the Greeks and other Jews who were jealous of them. And so Paul talks to them about that and he tells them, hey, look, man, I'm so excited that we're being persecuted together. Like, that's a weird thing to say, but I am this is encouraging to both of us that as I am flourishing, you can also flourish as well. 
that we find our hope in Christ and nowhere else. And that's largely where Paul lands at the end of it. He finishes up, he prays for them, for their endurance. He knows they've been doing fine, but wants them to endure as well as grow in their faith and in the comfort of knowing that Christ's return is imminent, which puts us straight into the next section, section three, which is gonna be chapters four and five. And major theme really is a challenge to grow. Paul in every single letter always has some sort of admonition, move, go forward, keep moving, keep growing, increase your faith, do this, stop doing that in some instances. But that's largely what this is going to be about. He starts off by challenging to live a life that's consistent with following Jesus. Live a life that's consistent with following Jesus. Now, over the course of the past few weeks as we've been in this epistle, I've asked you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, church the church isn't perfect. So I'm not going to ask you to do that this week. I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and say, hey, people aren't perfect. Can you remind them of that? Okay, two of you did it. Okay, all of you, good. Thank you. Okay, now, now here's the hard one. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, and husbands, this includes you, say, I'm not perfect. Good, good. There's some deniers out there. But you're not, I promise. But largely, Paul wants these people to move forward and to grow in their faith, to recognize that they aren't perfect people. That regardless of what you're enduring and where you are and where you have been, there is still time for us to move forward. We still have to live in such a way that it's going to honor God. We need to challenge, he's challenging them to grow. So he continued by reminding them that following Jesus takes a commitment to loving and serving other people. And that's what takes us into our key passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. It says this. It says, now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that so you'll not be dependent on anybody. Man, Paul tells them, look, we already know you love people well because we've spent time with you and we love you and we know your faith in Christ and because of that, you love people well. But regardless of the fact that you love people well, you can continue to love people better. And beyond that, when you're working, when you're in your daily life, you need to work in such a way that outsiders respect you for it. And so when we're talking about this idea of how does, how does church, how does being a Christian infiltrate your everyday life, I think this is a great example of how we can make it happen. We'll get to that in a second. So Paul lets them know they should work hard to make sure they're not in need and to make sure they have enough money to give to those who are in need. But, but I love how he starts the entire thing off. Saying, look, we know that you love people. We know that you love people. This church, these people were marked by what they did. They were marked by who they loved, which was everybody. Church, we got a problem in our 21st century that we're more known for what we hate than what we love. And so as Paul was saying, look, I know you love people. I know you are doing this well, but regardless of that, I bet you can do it even better. 
And so as we're in here today, rather than just agreeing with me and saying, you know what, you're right, the church has been known for what it hates rather than what it loves, I would admonish you then and encourage you to say, you know what, I love people well, how can I love people even better? How is that possible in my everyday life and the things that I am doing? So he he says, uh, we don't even need to talk about this because you guys have the whole thing down, but love better. So I'm going to go sideways for a second here, and it's going to drive some of you crazy because this largely is a pedestal issue for me. And so I haven't gotten to do this yet, so I'm just going to do it. So bear with me. If you hate it, that's okay. We'll get back to it next week, okay? So one of the things that drives me incredibly frustrated, gets me frustrated. I was going to say insane, but that's not true. Gets me frustrated. One of the things that gets me incredibly frustrated is, uh, is Christian culture. It's Christian culture. I get frustrated with the idea of Christian culture because we, for the most part, we aren't innovative and creative. Christian culture is not. We're not. Christian culture, for the most part, in at least as I was growing up, and that's all I can speak to, as I was growing up and into the 21st century, we've done a great job at, at looking at what popular culture is and then doing our best to make a Christian version of it that is always less as good. Here's a good example. You guys have all heard of YouTube for the most part, right? YouTube, yeah? My favorite slash worst example that I can think of of this is a little website called GodTube. It's not made up. It's real. That the Christians decided that rather than, than putting their content that they have created... Their content that they have put forth, their content that is driven by their love for Christ and their love for other people, rather than put that in a space that non-believers would go to, we have decided it was a better idea to create our own space over here where we don't have to interact with culture and we can say, you know what, this is where Christianity lives, over here. And it drives me nuts. It's always a worse version as well. Great, funny example. When I was in high school, I was, a, I was a freshman in high school, and I wanted nothing more than to fit in, like most freshmen in high school do. And so the popular clothing brand at the time was Abercrombie and Fitch. Yeah, there's one laugh from Danny. Good, Danny. Still wears it. Um, so, but rather than... Me embrace, like saying, you know what? I'm going to wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I decided that I was going to go to the Christian bookstore and they had a shirt there and the shirt on the front said, a breadcrumb and fish. <laughs> right? Okay. Kind of clever, a little punny, right? But really that shirt was a terrible representation of who Christ actually was. Like we are going to, we are going to whittle down what it is that we believe and what we believe about Jesus and who Jesus is to a badly phrased pun on a t-shirt. You know what I think? You know what I think Paul is talking about here? About working in such a way that you're going to regain the respect of outsiders? I think Paul is talking about the idea that whatever it is that you do, you better do it better than everybody else. Because you are a child of God. He created you. He made you to be a creative person. He created that right side of your brain on purpose. And so as you do the things that you do, as you walk through your day, you should think to yourself, not am I doing this to the best of my ability. Am I doing this to the best way that I can honor God? And that's what we should be doing on a regular basis. Man, whatever it is you find yourself doing, whether it is the fact that you are momming, man, mom with the best of them. 
If you are doing accounting, account with the best of them. If you are teaching, if you are policing, whatever it is that you are doing, that you would do to the best of your ability. And beyond that, you would do in such a way that's going to honor God, not honor man. It's also a stewardship issue creativity and working in such a way that we would gain the respect with outsiders is stewardship issue. It's not optional. Not if we're serious about, about conforming to the image of Christ. Cre- creativity is the natural, supernatural byproduct of our lives as they are spirit-filled. As Jesus goes before us, as we embrace the Holy Spirit and him saying yes to what, to what we should be doing in our lives. Specific regions of, uh, of the human brain are responsible for, for different functions. So for those of you who are like, I'm not going into neurological stuff, okay, tune me out for about two minutes and, and I'll tell you when it's time to get back with me, okay? But the visual cortex, it, it, it handles all input from our optic nerve, okay, from our eyeballs. The posterior hippocampus stores spatial memory, the medial ventral prefrontal frontal cortex is a seat of humor. Some of those are more developed in you than others. <laughs> Whether you're humming a hit from the 60s or 70s or 80s, or for you parents in the room, baby shark, you're welcome. Solving a Sudoku puzzle or interpreting facial expressions, there is a unique part of the brain that is responsible for performing each of those tasks. And like we know, the brain has two hemispheres, a left side and a right side. And there's approximately 300 million nerve fibers that make up the corpus, another word that I can't pronounce, connect those two hemispheres. It's a very, very watered down way of explaining something that's incredibly complex. So, so think of the brain as uh, two hemispheres of parallel processors, two different sides of the brain. They overlap in function, but they also handle distinct tasks, right? We all know this for the most part, at least generally speaking. But the left brain is the logical half, while the right brain is the creative half. Now, let's juxtapose that. Let's compare that to Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. With all of your mind. Loving God with half your mind doesn't cut it. Loving God as you are working with your hands and not being creative and not working to your full potential doesn't cut it. We have to love God with our entire mind. God wants to use your right brain imagination. You know how I know? I know because there's 350,000 different types of beetles on the earth. You're like, what? What does it have to do with anything? Our God is the most creative being in existence. 350,000 types of beetles. That's like 349,999 more beetles than I care to know about. (laughs) But God is our creator. And he is incredibly creative. And so the way in which we work should show off God. Think about your fingerprint. There is no one in existence and no one ever who has created and nor anybody in the future that will have your same exact fingerprint. That's God's workmanship. 
Think about, and I always go back to this one, think about Yosemite as you drive through Tunnel View and you stop and you look up. And man, even if you don't claim to know God, when you are at that point, man, outsiders respect it. So as we are working, as we are doing these different things, we need to do things in such a way that people are going to respect us. I think the church should be one of the most creative places in the planet because we are working unto God. We are working unto God. So now is as good a time as any for us to talk about our new worship pastor, Kyle, who did a good job this morning. Yeah, he did a good job. I'm assuming that was for God because he's a worship pastor, not a music pastor. Okay, so anyway, we'll move on as Kyle's laugh. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there's some of you who, in here who really liked his style. And there's some of you in here who are like, ah, don't prefer it. But regardless of that, God has made us as creative people. God has allowed us a left brain and a right brain. God has allowed us to say, you know what? There is a logical half to me where I am comfortable with familiarity. I'm comfortable with process. I'm comfortable with tradition. All of us have it. And then there's a right brain side of us that says, you know what? Like Psalm says, we need to sing into the Lord a new song. We need to be creative. We need to allow that. You know why? Because after 30, after 30 times of hearing the same song, guess what? You stop processing the words of the song. Did you know that? Which is crazy because I love every, every single time, every single time, Come Thou Fount comes on, I get tingles. Every time Amazing Grace, like that, that piano intro of Amazing Grace comes on, I get tingles. I have a deep respect and love for hymns. But that being said, we need to continue to be creative in this space, to work in such a way that outsiders are going to respect us. That we would stop simply creating spaces for Christians to be and Christians alone to be, but rather our music the things that we do with our hands would be so good that it doesn't have to just exist in a Christian realm only, that outsiders could see it and respect it as well. They may not agree with the theology, but there is no argument for the excellence that we put forth in the work that we are doing. And it doesn't just have to be music. That's one example. And God tube was another example. But the things that we do with our everyday life should be the driving force behind, behind what we're doing, behind honoring God to the best of our ability. So Paul is reminding them, hey, work with your hands. Work in such a way that outsiders are going to respect you. And then we're going to go back a little bit to 1 Thessalonians 4, which is your next slide. He goes to 1 Thessalonians 4, and the major theme there is the hope of Christ's return. The hope of Christ's return. So he says all of these things. He says, look, you need to work with your hands. You, I'm thankful for where you've been. Continue to grow. Continue to do all these things. Move forward in Christ. But regardless of that, as you are doing these things, we have a hope in Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so it will be with the Lord forever. So some of you want me to go into eschatology right now, okay? Eschatology is the study of end times. We're not going to do it, okay? So, sorry, not sorry. Um, but rather than getting bogged down in that, 
I think the overtones what Paul was really trying to highlight is their hope should be in Christ's return. That's what their hope should consistently be in Christ's return. We need to live in such a way. We need to live a life that is honoring God in hopes that Christ is going to return. So everybody who interacts with us on a regular basis, there will be no doubt in their mind that you love Jesus, that we love Jesus, that everything that we do, the workmanships from our hands will point people directly back to Jesus. And here's the deal. As you read this, and if you go back and you read 1 Thessalonians, you probably are going to get the feeling that Paul is writing in such a way that it sounds like he thinks Christ is going to come back as he is still alive. You read it and you're like, oh, he totally thinks that Jesus is coming back. Obviously, he, he didn't. But even for us, there's people here who think, you know what, Jesus is going to come back while we're still alive. And I hope so. Man, I hope he comes back in the next five minutes so I can wrap this thing up and get straight to glory. <laughs> but regardless of that, our hope needs to be in his return whenever it is. And as long as we are here or until he calls us home, that we will continue to point people directly at him, at his son who came on our behalf so we could be glorified with his father forever. That's what Paul is pointing to, which leads us to our big idea, which is following Jesus produces a holy way of life. Our hope, the way that we hope in his return, the way that we love other people, the way that we work with our hands, all of those things, following Jesus produces a holy way of life. The theological term for that we've talked about before, it's the idea of sanctification, becoming holy as you say yes to Jesus over and over and over again. Don't pack up yet. We need to be clear here, though, that praying a prayer to Jesus does not produce a holy way of life. Merely loving people without, without substantive life change of gospel proclamation doesn't lead to a holy way of life. Sitting in a Bible study doesn't produce a holy way of life. Following Jesus produces a holy way of life. So what does that look like? I think it goes back to what Paul says in verse 12, when I got on my soapbox, about working in such a way that outsiders will respect you. What does your life look like? What does your work look like? Are you working in such a way that outsiders respect you? If you go to work every day, are you on time? Do you work hard? Do you not talk poorly about others, but do your best to encourage a healthy workplace? Is your work the best work in the entire building? Are you the best accountant that all other accountants wish they were as good as you at accounting? Because somebody has to do accounting and I'm so thankful it's not me. But are you the best accountant? Simply because you outwork everyone, because you want to honor God with your workmanship. Not because you're the smartest in the building, because let's face it, hardly any of us are. There's one person in here today who is the smartest in the building. I don't know who it is, it's not me. But it's somebody else other than you. But are you outworking everybody in such a way that, that people know that you love Jesus, but regardless of the fact that they know you love Jesus, you are showing them that you love Jesus by the work that you're putting forth so that every single outsider respects you. Maybe you're a teacher, any teachers in the room? Teachers? You're like, I'm too tired to raise my hand. I had to teach after Halloween this year. I get it. But 
Maybe you're a teacher and you go out of your way to make sure other teachers have the resources that they need. I know for some teachers you're like, nope, they don't work hard enough. Sorry, <laughs> I get it. But maybe that's, maybe that's part of it. Sharing lesson plans and wisdom that you've garnered year over year with the, especially those new teachers who are coming in who just look like sheep being led to the slaughter. You're like, I'm so sorry. You're about to get eaten alive by all of those seventh graders. Um, are you loving students regardless of how annoying they are and how many times they've forgotten their lunch at home and you get interrupted because the office is bringing their lunch to you again, right? Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Are you momming in such a way that other moms respect you and don't feel ashamed because of you? That when, when one of your peers has a sick kiddo at home, you offer to take the rest to school or pick them up and drop them off. Or maybe you know they couldn't make it to something and they get your Starbucks order and come and they drop it off on your porch for you because they don't want to get germs from the rest of your family like as close as I'm going. Maybe that's what it looks like. Regardless of what it is, regardless of who you are, regardless of what it is that you do, the way we live like Christ is to do whatever it is to the best of our ability as we honor God in it that we would outwork everybody because we are becoming more holy because we love God and he created us in such a way to be creative problem solvers who are going to work in such a way that the rest of the world respects us, not respects us in our Christian realm, but just respects us. That's what it looks like to have a practical faith that outsiders would know who you are and what it is that you believe simply because you dominate every single space that you're in because you are honoring God with what you're doing. That you're not taking an easy way out. You say, you know what? No, I am honoring God in this. I am honoring God in my family. I am honoring God in my job. I am honoring God in my extracurricular activities. I am honoring God in the Bible studies that I am leading or the people in the small groups that, I'm, that I am over or whatever it is that you are honoring God in those things. Man, what would it look like if, if our Christian community, our Christian culture began to work in such a way that outsiders respected us. That our work would be so good, so excellent, that people would want to support us simply because we worked in such a way that honored him. That our stores were the best stores in town. Not because of a Jesus fish on the window and all the Christians will come support us, but because of, and not because of some internal drive towards being the best, but simply because we want to serve God every single day of our lives. And as we serve God every single day of our lives, the things that we do, the works of our hands would honor him and cause other people to respect us. That our accounting firms would have people in line around the corner simply because we worked in such a way that people knew that their taxes weren't going to get messed up because you love Jesus that our businesses, that our homes, that everybody be looking to us to figure out how it is that they should be living, to figure out how, how hard they need to be working. That man, I don't agree with the whole Jesus thing, but I certainly respect them. And I feel like that's something that's been lost. I feel like there's no longer a respect for the Christian community. And before you blame everybody else, we need to look inwards. And say, what, it is, what is it that we have done to cause the rest of culture to ignore us and no longer respect us? Because the works of our hands need to point people directly back 
to Jesus. But the re- regardless is, regardless of all that, it all starts with saying yes to Jesus. That's how it all starts, by saying yes to Jesus and following Jesus. So this morning as we close, uh, it's going to be a bit different. I'm going to pray in just a second, but I'm going to invite Jeff and Kyle. Why don't you guys come on up, and we're going to close with communion. And communion is open to anyone who has professed their faith in Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church um, or, or call this your church home. You simply need to have said yes to Jesus. So... Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we lift up today to you. God, as we recognize that uh, our works, the things that we do, should be things that point people directly back to your son. The way in which we work should be such. But God, I also, I know that there are people in this room who have not said yes to you yet. And God, I pray that now is as good a time as any to recognize that that there is something more substantial here than what the world is offering. God, that we would be willing to say yes to you every single day. And so if there are people in this room who have not said yes to you, who have that burden on their heart to say yes, Father, I pray that they would pray along with me, that they would A, that they would admit that they're a sinner in need of a savior. God, that we're all messed up. We all have issues that we're dealing with they would just admit that they're a sinner in need of a savior, just like the rest of us. They would be, believe that you sent your son to die on the cross on our behalf so we could be with you forever, so we could be reconciled to you forever. So when we leave this place or when you come back, we get to be with your dad. Father, thank you. And that see in the hardest one, and even as Paul was talking to the church in Thessalonica about it, Father, we would choose to follow you every single day, regardless of where we are on the spectrum. Father, whether that's someone who have just said yes to you for the first time today, or somebody who says yes to you for the last 50 years, God, I pray that we would continue to choose to follow you every single day of our lives. We love you, Father in your sons, then we pray. Amen. So today, uh, as we think back and hearken back to the upper room so many years ago, Jesus did this alongside his disciples, and he told them to do this in remembrance of me. And so at our church, our tradition is to do this on the first, first Sunday of every month. And so we're excited you're with us today, excited to, to serve communion today. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, though everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And so I hope today that we would do that. Even as we heard the message, we've, we've, we've sung the music and we've worshiped the Lord. God, I pray that, uh, man, that we would examine ourselves. So today as you, as you take the bread and the cup, uh, it's necessary for us to, to look inward to make sure that our hearts are focused on the Lord and we remember the the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for us. And on the night that he, he was handed over, the night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered with his friends for a meal. He took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me.
Father, as we take this bread, let it be a sign of all you did for us and who you are for us. Father, thank you for this bread of life. Take and eat. After sharing the bread, Jesus took the cup and gave it to them to drink, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Pray with me. Father, as we drink this cup, let it be a reminder for all of us what your son did on our behalf and who you are for us. Thank you that you bring us peace that passes understanding. Take and drink. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we uh, close in prayer and we're going to have one last song. Father, through your death and through your resurrection, you, uh, you reconciled the world to 